As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Prep to Pro NBA Draft Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Max Carlin, and I'm joined as always by Jake Rosen. Jake, how are you doing? I'm glad to be back. Um, it's, it's been a while. I've been getting a lot of DMs asking about our future and when we're going to put out a new episode. I think the people are um, excited for some content, so I'm, I'm glad to be back. And I think this is going to be a very fun episode. Yeah, we are alive. We have not vanished. Um, <laughs> we just have been busy and not podcasting. Uh, but we're here. It's um, we're recording this on on Wednesday, but releasing it on the morning of the 2021 NBA draft, which is super exciting. Um, this this cycle did not drag on as long as as the last one. Um, but uh, yeah, we're we're finally here. Um, and we have we have a we have a cool episode today uh, and an exciting guest. Uh, we have our boss and the former Phoenix Suns director of analytics, Jake Lowe's. Jake, how you doing? What's up, Max? Rosen, good to see you as always. We're going to call you Rosen today because I'm, <laughs> I'm the Jake on this podcast. So uh, it's honestly an honor to, to be here. Yeah, so with, in today's episode, what we're going to do is give a look inside an, an NBA draft room. Um, I think this is not an opportunity that, that uh, we, we've had in the past, certainly, and that a lot of draft podcasts get would be to to really understand what goes on during draft day. Um, and, you know, we'll really try to dig into what the decision-making processes are like, um, what kind of work is being done uh, and just how, how the actual draft itself plays out, which, uh, which should be super fun. Um, so I guess let's, let's start at the beginning of the day. Uh, if you, if you're working for an NBA team right now on the morning of the NBA draft, what are you doing? Is it, is it a crazy hectic time? Or um, like, like, are you are you cramming cramming for a final, or you know, is everything kind of set already? I'd say if you're cramming, you're definitely doing it wrong. Um, it's actually what's weird is the week of the draft is in a in a in an odd sense like the chillest time of the year um, because you've spent so much effort and time hosting workouts, doing analyses, watching film that by the time of the, the week of the draft, most of the work is geared towards trade discussions. And so it could, there were a couple drafts where the morning of I was super busy because we were knee deep in some trade negotiations with, with teams. But I re- recall a couple others where I was kind of just sitting around twiddling our thumbs. Like when we had the number one pick in 2018, for instance, we went in kind of knowing what we were going to do that day. Um, and obviously during the actual draft things happened where we made some trades, but 
the morning of is actually really relaxed. And um, honestly, I, if I remember, I would like one of them, there was a major soccer tournament. I was like watching soccer during the day. Um, and uh, it's just one of those things you want to keep your mind busy um, because you're, you're anxious to get it over with, but uh, the work's already been put in hopefully. So what do you make of, of claims of guys rising or falling on boards at this point in the cycle? If the evaluation process is kind of over. I would say agents are good at their jobs and very active. And almost every rumor that you see uh, on Twitter or shared via the news is likely driven by an agent sharing something with the with Woj or, or whomever. And um, you would you would hope that by you know draft day, teams would have a really good understanding of how they value players. And so um, it. That, that whole narrative of, oh, this player had a, an incredible workout. It was, it was so sick. Like you had to see it to, to believe it. Like, I mean, in the end, they're mostly all one on zero. So like, I guess they made a lot of shots, had some cool dunks, but like in general, I would much rather watch their film uh, to have a much better view of the player than just from a one on zero workout. And usually that those leaks are, are agents driven. And they sh- and that makes sense. They're doing their jobs, trying to get people talking about their player, making teams feel like, oh, we better draft this player eighth because we know this team is really interested in that player at ninth or tenth. When in reality, that might not even be the case at all. And so it makes makes sense that they're doing their jobs, but just be be cautious when you see those types of reports. Do you, do you see oh. any utility to to the one on zero workouts? Like, is there a reason that teams conduct them, and, and what do they gain from them if if um if you certainly put the, put the emphasis on the film. It's, <laughs> I always like to say that they were a confirmation bias enhancer. Like I feel this way about a player. I'm going to see what I want to see out of that player in their one on zero workout. And then if someone else, let's say I don't like, wasn't high on that player. I'm probably going to be able to just tell myself like, Oh, even if they made a lot of shots, it's like, Oh yeah, because no one's guarding them. So they, of course they made shots, but that doesn't matter. But if I actually liked the player, I would be like, oh yeah, you see that? He made 80 of 100 threes. That was amazing. And that typically happened where you could have, it's crazy how you could have such a different view of a workout based on your your previous evaluation of the player. Um, I do think there's value in it um, for sure because it, like getting to see how the player interacts with coaches, like their, their general, like their communication, their motor on the court, how much they care. Um, I think they're, I don't know how every team obviously handles these one on zero workouts. I only have experience with one team on it. Um, I do think more uh, study of like film study and having them walk through like defensive concepts and thing like things like that could be really valuable. Um, but in terms of the actual on court one on zero, uh, especially cause you can't get like, we couldn't bring Devin Booker out there to work out with him. Uh, and so like that, that would be cool. Um, but in general, you can't, you're not going to get much value having a coach guard guard the player one-on-one um and so or a chair or a chair of course um and so yeah it's it's definitely just mainly i would say they could be really valuable but in the end they actually probably hurt things more than anything because of confirmation bias yeah um so i just had a follow-up question on in terms of the workouts because like you said the majority of these workouts are one on zero with the coaching staff and, and can certainly be like you said confirmation bias enhancers but there are some group workouts and especially a lot a lot of them contain prospects that might be in the same draft range or, and things of that nature um when i see those 
lists that come out, a lot of times I start thinking about in, in interesting matchups and contrasting skill sets and things like that. On the team side, um, how meticulous or not meticulous at all is that process that goes into planning who is in a workout with who? And are you aiming to maybe make certain prospects uncomfortable and show certain things? Um, I'm always just fascinated by the actual group that gets gathered for these group workouts. Fantastic question. So a lot of work gets put in to like create those. And it's mainly because you think you have 30 teams trying to get these, these players to work out for you or, mm-hmm. and you're, you're all competing against each other to try to get them scheduled. And then also travel's a thing. And so less, it's less about like, Oh, we need to have these players paired against each other. Cause I you can have that thought, but in, in reality, it's really hard to actually execute it. And so in the end, most of the, the six person workouts are like, these are six players we could find to work out on this day. Um, and ideally you, you have like a one, you know, two bigs, two ball handlers and two wings. So that three on three makes sense. Um, those workouts though are awesome. And I miss, I miss attending three on threes uh, mainly because usually they are players who are, you know, at best first, like late first round projection, projected picks, but mostly second round undrafted guys who are, you know, their livelihoods are at on like, they're on the line and they're playing, they're playing their asses off. Um, but similar to the one on zeros, a player, you're, you're going to definitely deal with small sample size issues. You could have a player who's not typically a great shooter who that day is just hitting everything. And you're going to be like, Oh, this play, you see that? Like that player was knocking down shots. I, I don't want to, I went back and forth whether or not I, I say some of the players who the Suns ended up drafting who like I'm referring to, I'm going to, I'm not going to do that. Um, but we, we had a second round pick and during my time there that came to a draft workout, there was a lot of evidence. He couldn't really shoot, um, knock down every shot. We took him in the second round and let's just say he's not in the NBA anymore. So, um, and so that, that definitely happens a lot, but the intensity is, is really fun to be around because these, these players are playing for their lives and that's, it's really cool to see. So do you ever, when constructing these workouts, is it, is it really just about availability or would you say bring in a really good ball screen defender maybe who is a really strong defender against maybe a strength-based creator and you want to evaluate that creator and you're not really interested at all in the, in the really strong uh, point of attack defender. Would you ever you know, like create those matchups, not between guys that you're both interested in, but, but in these skill sets that, that will, you know, allow the guy you're actually evaluating to be challenged. Absolutely. And you try your best. So like, I do remember in 2018, we tried, I forget the ball handler, but we specifically brought Javon Carter in to guard that player um, because we wanted to see how he would handle, like you knew what Javon Carter brought to the table defensively. And um, we, we were interested in this other like initiator and thought it would be a really good matchup to see them play against each other. Um, So you do your best. And especially like, let's say you book Javon Carter then you know, like, okay, let's really focus on finding someone who would be interesting to watch them guard. Um, and you, you do that to the best of your ability. But as I mentioned, with all of the moving parts and um, all the agents you have to deal with and things like that, it, it really, you just do. That's why some of the lists of three on threes you see, you're like, I can't believe that this is a, a workout that actually happened for an NBA team. Um, and it's because in the end, you may have one or two players that you're actually interested in. You just need to fill the rest of the roster. And so uh, usually a lot of times we would grab players from Arizona state or Arizona who aren't really prospects just to be a body um, in the workout. So. 
Um, yeah, so thinking about getting another guard to go against Javon Carter in a three-on-three workout kind of just brought me right to the cat and mouse game that I think teams have to navigate between agents and the information they do allow versus the information they don't allow. And I mean, we see it in the public sphere. We see it most prominent at the combine where some guys don't test, some guys don't play, um, some guys don't measure. How do you guys navigate that on the team side? Because obviously as evaluators, it, like it's okay for us to not have certain information, but as a team, you're investing a lot in, into these potential picks. How do you navigate that on a team's side? It's the hardest thing you can do, right? Like you can watch all of the film and trust the film is always the thing I come back to um, as long as you know what you're watching. Um, and we can get into that another time or later in this podcast, but, um, but as we all know, there's way more that goes into a player's uh, potential NBA uh, success than just their ability to play on the court, right? Um, their personality, their medical history, their self-awareness, their work ethic, their off-court problems, if you will. And there is just so much work put into that, into evaluating that to the best of, of the team's ability. And a lot of like scouts obviously have their job for a reason because they have good instincts watching film. But what I learned very quickly is a lot of scouts are successful in the NBA because of their connections with college coaches, with high school coaches, with AAU coaches, uh, just in the basketball industry in general, because a lot of work, you, it, go, it goes back to your first question of, you know, what's draft week like? Maybe it, for me, it wasn't as busy, but for scouts, they're up to the draft day, they are trying still to get as much information about these, these kids as possible. Um, and using those, you know, using those one-on-zero workouts to learn more about those things. And one of the main benefits of a one-on-zero is you get the medical, um, you get to actually test them uh, medically to, to have a better sense of, um, you know, what medical issues that they have um, and also their athleticism, things like that. And also getting to spend, like you spend the whole day with them, you get to go to dinner with them, learn about their personality quirks. Like would they fit in with the team? Uh, things like that, but it couldn't be more of an inexact science, right? It's think about like, if you're calling, I'm, I'm not going to name any players, but if you're, if there's a player on Kansas and you call Bill self, you think he's going to actually tell you like this, this guy's a, 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 you know, not a great guy. Like he's going to cause issues. No, he's going to be like, this guy's the best person I've, I, I coached in my, my 20 years at Kansas. Like that's, I, I, it's funny reading through every report, every single player coming to the league is, is an outstanding human being and going to be like, not a problem at all. And that's where it's trying to figure out, read between the lines and, and try, and honestly try to find people who really know those players. It's, it really is a, a an interesting part of the, the whole process that obviously the public isn't, um, isn't really aware of, uh, and, but I can say, at least from my experience, it's still there's still a long way to go um, to figuring that out on the on the team side. But I do think there are a few teams probably that have done a great job with it. And part of the reason that those players that, you know, those teams like Toronto, uh, Oklahoma City, they get a lot of credit for finding like diamonds in the rough. But I think part of it is they're also identifying players who you know fit their their culture and are coachable, things like that. That's part of it. It's not just like these players are good on the court. So. And I think that plays a big piece of it. And you can get a huge competitive advantage by, by beating the rest of the, the rest of the league in terms of understanding a player's personality and work ethic and things like that. Yeah. And, and 
but before you head into into the draft room for the draft itself what other preparatory work are you doing in the in the final days and and hours uh are you like setting up contingent trades discussing potential frameworks like kind of gauge gauging value for picks and players uh you know how, how do you set yourself up to actually conduct the draft yeah so it's mostly at least I can speak on the analytics side, of course, it's mostly NBA evaluation more than the draft because most of the offers you're getting are teams offering actual NBA players for picks. And so most of the work, even though you have a good sense of these NBA players, of course, if you're working in NBA front office, uh, we also have way more data on the NBA, NBA players as well. So there's more we can do evaluating these players and their fit in our current roster. Um, and so most of the, almost all of the work on draft day, and this is mostly conducted by the GM because he's the one on the, he or she is on the phone uh, with, with teams. And the goal is to get as many deals on the board as possible so that you can evaluate which ones we should pursue, which ones aren't for us, things like that. And a lot of those deals though, have NBA players involved in the deal. And, and so most of the discussion actually isn't, you know, debating between Josh Jackson, Jonathan Isaac and Jason Tatum, it's what's the difference between Gershon Yabaselli and Semi Ojale. And so that's that's more the more of the discussion. And that goes through the draft. Like NBA players are thrown into trades constantly throughout the draft. And you see it on draft day. I guarantee you tomorrow there will be uh, multiple NBA players traded on draft night. And that that just happens. And that's where most of the most of the discussion is centered around. Um, yeah, then segueing into the actual draft, I think this is probably what I'm most fascinated about and most of the listeners as well. Um, what is it like that, what is the dialogue and the conversation like in the actual draft room when you're approaching on the clock? Um, what are things you're prioritizing? What are the points you're trying to hammer home with certain prospects? How does the engagement with other people? Cause this is a group effort. I mean, it's maybe at the end of the day, one or two people have a final say, but getting to that final point, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So I'm just really curious what that dialogue looks like. Yeah, so the dialogue leading up to the draft is a lot of fun. Some of my favorite moments are sitting in the, in the draft room, you know, a couple of weeks before the draft, just discussing players. It's like kind of what you guys do on Twitter, right? Like literally just talking about their value, like what type of player they are. A lot of disagreement, hopefully a lot of respectful disagreement. But those are those were some of the best days, especially because I had a kind of a different background and perspective than a lot of the traditional scouts. So we had a lot of interesting uh, dialogue around the players. But on the day of the draft, the actual, like, as the draft's going on, it's honestly like watching the draft coverage <laughs> because like you're, you know, the GM is on the phone. Um, you also, it's important to know that teams know which players are getting drafted way before you do on, on the coverage. There's a WhatsApp group where with all, a representative of all 30 teams in there. And so <laughs> by the time, by the time the draft starts, you actually were like the, the 10th pick is on the clock basically. Uh, because you just like, it's almost like, yeah, it's really funny. You're just like texting. God, you could like, auction oh. off access to that uh, WhatsApp group for charity or something like that. <laughs> That's a really good idea. I, <laughs> I, I never, I never was in the group, but I sat next to the person who was work running the WhatsApp and, uh, 
yeah, it was really tough not to tell my friends like, Hey, your team, which, you know, the draft hasn't started your team who picked nine. Is, is I know, I know just in the group or does, does he get, <laughs> no, he gets it after. I think someone tell someone tells him, but I don't think he's definitely not in the group. And I think he doesn't even have access to like how far ahead we are in the draft. Um, but that's, it's a, like a respect thing because you're, let's say you're trying to trade for the 10th pick, then you know exactly the nine players if your player is available at 10. And so it's like once a team knows who they're going to take um, and that slows down, like I think among the top teams, like, you know, like you've done your work, you know exactly who you're probably going to take. And if that player is not there, you know, the alternative is the second player. So, that you're so today, take. Thursday morning, how many picks would you say are already, already decided? Probably the top five if i had to guess um because i think you know we don't need to throw in our draft takes right now but uh it feels like the top three or four and then orlando at five probably has they have an idea who's going to be there at five so they probably kind of made their decision and i think that the real draft's going to start after that especially and that actually coincides with kind of how i think we all think feel like the the draft is tiered as well and so i think that's when the the draft's really going to get going but I would say if Houston hasn't decided who they're taking it to yet, then I, I would be very shocked. Uh, yeah. They've had a long time to, to figure that out at this point. They should not be wavering. Yeah. Um, so when you're preparing for the actual decision-making, when you're on the clock, what does board formation look like for a team? I know you're, you're not a fan of big boards and, and rankings. Um, so do teams make tiers or you know, like – have a group of players that they set out to get one of those guys or, or do, I mean, is it a traditional big board? How, like how do teams actually set themselves up for the decision-making process when they're finally on the official or unofficial clock? Yeah. So there's two answers. There's the way I would do it. And then the way I I've seen it done um, the way I've seen it done. And I don't know how often this is done across the league, but it was pretty traditional in terms of, here's our average big board. Like here's what our final decision maker thinks. Like here's his rankings, which have the most pull because he's the one making the final decision. Uh, I appreciate you referencing to the, to the public that I I'm anti rankings uh, and I anti big board. Uh, I'm more into the tiers and, and, and skill set, like what exactly they're bringing to the table and does it fit for the needs of your, of your specific team. And so I think it would be much more interesting to value players. It's important though. Like if you, let's say you have a ranking just of ball handlers, wings and bigs, it is important to know relative to each other. Like, would you put Evan Mobley in the same tier as Jalen Suggs? Like that's important, even though they're in separate buckets. Uh, But I do think a mix of separating by role and by tier would be the ideal way of setting them. Here's their role. And here's also the tier I put them in kind of thing. Uh, And then, as the draft goes, I think, you know, at the t- it also depends on the roster you have. So certain teams like Houston will likely try to take a player they think has the best potential to be a star in the NBA because they don't have many assets on their team right now or they have very few good young players. They're going to look for someone who could be their all-star, right? Uh, but then if you get later in the first round, I think it becomes a different calculus. Like there is like the you know, you could say the best player available, but I, I like to say it as the best player available for your team. And so a team that, like a team, I'm not going to say any teams, but a team late in the first round, they may have a specific need 
uh, for a secondary playmaker and who can defend, like, let's just be simple. And so ideally you would have a list of players that fit that mold and you, and you value them in the way uh, that you see fit. And I think a specific anecdote I have from that, from my time, which is a positive one, which is which I'll, why I'll share it is after we drafted Aiton in 2018, we then, we had, you know, you're building around Devin Booker and DeAndre Aiton. You have suddenly a need for, you know, a wing who can defend at a high level away from the ball, has high instincts and can shoot secondary playmake. We, we did a great job of kind of identifying that's the need of our player. We had the 16th pick at the time. And we put a list of those players who kind of fit that mold, the, the Kevin Herters, DiVincenzos uh, in, in that draft. And to us, Mikel was so much better than all the others. Um, and you can argue whether that's true. I, I feel that's, that's true. And, uh, and so we, we made a, you know, a pretty costly trade in terms of how the public perceived it, of giving up an unprotected first to move up to get Mikel. But I thought our process to arrive at that was really, really good. Uh, and and that was, was cool to see. So in terms of satisfying fit and need to, to you, is, is it much more than about collecting skill sets than saying, you know, we, we need a center um, or is it, <laughs> is it more, you know, we need role gravity to complement our, our star playmaker and our coach wants to play drop. So we need a big man who is competent in drop coverage. Is that more fit to you? Or is it like we have a hole at center? We have a hole at backup point guard. Well, to me, 100% what you said, the second, or the latter there, for sure. Um, is that actually how it is in practice across the league? I would say probably for some teams, but probably not for others. Uh, there is a still the traditional one through five, and we have a one, two, three, and five. We need to find a four. And it's like, you can, and I'm being a little simplistic. Like, even if you identify you need a four, you would go into more detail of like the type of four you're looking for. And that's where the coach adds a lot of value in the draft process in terms of uh, I think you nailed it on the head and identifying exactly how they want to use a four in their offense um, and trying to find the player that fits that makes a lot of sense, but you know, coaching staffs change a lot. Um, so, you know, relying on what the coach's scheme to draft a player is maybe not the best approach because like you could have a whole entirely new system and coach in two years, just the way that's just the way of the league, unfortunately. And so, but it certainly makes way more sense to understand your team's strengths and weaknesses. And I don't mean just like we're good at scoring and good at defense, but specifics to those, to those skills in terms of like, what? okay, you're good at scoring. How do you score? Like, what are your, do you have a lot of initiation and advantage creation, or are you just an amazing shooting team and you need an actual playmaker to, to complement that? The wait is finally over. Football is in full effect and the NBA is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. Head to Bet Online today and use promo code ARMCHAIR to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. So does it ever get to the point where you go super granular, you identify, okay, we want fours, but we don't just want fours. We want fours who are really good weak side rim protectors. But do you then back out and say, actually, we don't want a four. We want weak side rim protection. And if that comes in, you know, Cade Cunningham 
is a primary initiator, but because of his recognition and size and length and strength and willingness and mobility and intelligence, uh, he is a really talented weak side rim protector. Does it ever get to that point where you reconsider the, the parameters that you started with and you realize, okay, this is a skill set that we can actually get elsewhere? Yeah, you try. You try to explain those things, but sometimes it's hard to convince people who think more traditionally uh, that you should value players that way and not use positions. It's, I think for younger basketball minds, it makes a lot of sense that positions are an archaic way of viewing basketball and trying to convince people who have been studying basketball for 25 years that positions are kind of meaningless now. It's, it's challenging, uh, but I think that's... There are ways to get around that, though, and I think you identified one, which is what is – I'm going to bring it back to the Suns because I have that, – that, that 2018 draft was one of the most interesting days of my life. And so 2018, DeAndre Ayton's weakness, one of them, was weak side rim protection. You bring it – and so Mikel Bridges, his off-ball defense is elite. He actually provides secondary – he's a pretty good weak side rim protector uh, with his length and recognition – and so one of the ways we identified like, oh, he actually compliments Aiton well is he helps curb that weakness of his. And that resonated more than um, just trying to say that, oh, we could just get weak side room protection from the, from the wing. If you, give, if you give it a specific example and show some clips of like him doing that, then I think uh, people can be more convinced of that, almost like tricking them into thinking that way, if you will. So I actually, I, so I had a follow-up question from your initial anecdote. So I'm glad you continued on with that draft day. The one that, thing that stuck out with me from that story is how quickly what you quote unquote need and fit it can change in the NBA. Obviously you guys were in a unique situation. You had the first pick, you knew you had your choice of everyone. Let's just say someone had picks four and 18, they could be going through that same thought process, getting the guy they want at four, which then let's say he is DeAndre Aiden, hypothetically, and they need to fill that gap. So obviously like progression and development is not linear in the NBA. We see that time and time again. How do you evaluate? And I know you kind of hit on this earlier, but I kind of want to take it a little bit further. How do you weigh what your fit is right now in terms of like your actual prospect rankings, especially if you're not like in contention? No, it's, it's, it's such a good question. And I don't think any of us have the answer, right? Of how it's essentially, how are you waiting a player's floor versus a player's ceiling or like a potential ceiling. And as a math nerd, like myself, you can get super probabilistic into it in terms of like, okay, what is not only here's their, their floor level, here's where their ceiling could be. What is the probability likelihood of them getting there is kind of the way I would look at it. But then that's just one thing. And then how do you, how does each evaluator consider each of those components as well? Like some value, like the way I think the draft is, typically discussed publicly is mostly focusing on that ceiling where there's a bit of an ignoring of the floor, which is, you know, it's fun to be like, Oh, this guy's going to be a future hall of famer, a future all-star. He's a mix of these five all-stars, like, you know, those fun comparisons to players and things like that. Uh, I get more, in, I, I'm more, more fascinated actually in, in identifying how good the player is at basketball already, because that, <laughs> Player development is really hard. There's so many things that can go wrong. And that, that goes back to the earlier, like figuring out like what, how the player's wired and things like that. And that's such an inexact science that, that I think a way to kind of curb that issue is by just drafting players who are already good at basketball. And so, you know, 
that they're going to be able to come on the floor and contribute uh, from, from day one, despite not um, even going through a development system or anything like that. And so I do think, though, that it is 100% dependent on ownership and their view of like what they need. And so back in like 2016 and 2017, we could take much riskier picks because there was more of a long timeline and you could focus more on like trying to identify the next all-star. By 2018, we were much more in a position where we had to start getting good pretty immediately. Um, did I think that we would make the finals three years or the Suns would make the finals three years later? No, absolutely not. But uh, trying to identify a player who you know is good. There's no, we had failed on a couple picks prior. So there was even more pressure on getting a pick right. And so identifying like, okay, highest floor matters the most here. Like, will he get better? Probably based on his trajectory in college. But Mikel is someone who had an extremely high floor and would, you knew that he would contribute to winning in, in the NBA, even if he wasn't, even if he tweaked his shot in the offseason after we drafted him. Um, he was still immediately impactful defensively. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of value in that, and so it's definitely situational when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, I'm glad you guys started to explore the developmental stakes because there was some stuff I wanted to ask about that. In addition to already, uh, in addition to also pers- uh, talking about the the develop the decision making constraints, um, because that's uh, that's another like re- really interesting thing that I think people don't think about enough when when approaching the draft. Uh, through the reality that teams actually have to approach it. But development, I, I think it is like a, an important aspect of fit that probably doesn't get accounted for as much because it's, it's hard to account for it. But how, how does that factor into fit when you're actually part of the, the decision-making group that, that is empowered to create these developmental contexts? Like how, how does it factor in that if, if you're looking at a ball handler who maybe you do deem to be the best player available, whatever that means, uh, purely off of talent. Um, if you cannot actually put that ball handler in a position to develop, meaning like maybe you don't think the G League is gonna is going to challenge him enough for him to develop in the areas that he needs to develop, and uh, in the NBA you already have a really good on ball creator who uh, maybe is not a good off ball player or is going to become uh, uh, disillusioned if you take away some of his on-ball reps or something like that. How how do these factors play into considering fit, considering whether it's viable for you to take a guy and actually, you know, whether he can be the best player available for you in in you know in particular? It's yeah, it's it's arguably the most important part of all of this is trying, and this is you know the work we're doing at SIS is trying to help figure that out too, is what is the likelihood that the player will actually get better from how they are? Let's say we've now figured out the floor question. Now we got to figure out the question of how likely they are to hit that ceiling. And again, it's an inexact science, but I will say if I learned anything about development, it's that you have to, when you bring a player in, you actually have to know what they're, they need to work on. And it can't be as simple as, they need to work on their shooting because that's easy to value, right? Like this player shot 30% from three in college. So of course they probably need to work on their shooting, but specific, what kind of shooting should you work on is for example, like, are you going to use them as just a catch and shoot shooter? Or are you going to actually rely on them to hit pull-up shots and, and focusing on the role that they would fit. Um, but I think especially when it comes to defense is 
an area that I noticed we didn't focus nearly enough time on developing our rookies. And obviously, you know, bringing up Mikel again, we didn't need to work as much on him defensively, but there are so many times we'd bring a player in and not really focus on their on defensive principles and fundamentals. Um, and it, it was clear in college that they actually struggled in those areas um, when you really dug deeper. And I noticed that, you know, they may have gambled too much working on their defensive discipline, things like that. And it's just, when it comes to, there's just so, and I, once again, this is anecdotal. There are probably teams that really do this well, because there is a, such a competitive advantage to developing your players really well. Like a, it's maybe the most, the biggest competitive advantage you can get because you're signing these players for so cheap and you have team control of these players. And so I think that it is so crucial that after you, like you should have this analysis already done if you've drafted the player. Uh, but you have to really go in as much detail as possible at literally every element of their game so that if by the time you do have a time, you do have a couple months to develop them before they actually play in the NBA too. But even throughout the season and moving forward, making sure you really understand um, their weaknesses and what they need to get, what they need to get better at immediately in order to, to see the court and the role that, that you drafted them to fit and um, working on those. And I'm not a player development expert. And thankfully there are a lot of incredible player development coaches in the NBA, and which is why the product's so good now, because there are so many good, good coaches teaching these players, these things, but uh, it's so important with these young players to, to focus on the right things. If, if you're aware of the like limitations within your, within your organization, say yeah, that you're not awesome. going to develop discipline necessarily that well, does that encourage you then to, look to prospects from Villanova, like Mikel Bridges or, or a Texas tech or Virginia, you know, these, these schools that are continually producing guys that are very disciplined defensively, but maybe have deficiencies in areas that you are more adept at. Developing. Yeah. I, I think this goes to a more general life philosophy. It's self-awareness is very attractive. And I think you should be self-aware about your organization too, of where you, where you're weak and where you're strong. And if you've made a bunch of, draft picks where you take players who are undisciplined played in more undisciplined systems and you want to make sure that doesn't happen anymore. I don't think there's anything wrong with maybe really focusing on that because you know that internally you haven't done a great job uh, developing that, that type of skill. And that could go to like, Oh, you should maybe hire better player development coaches too. And that's certainly a factor as well, but it's, it's certainly cheaper to just draft a better player. And so it's a, it's definitely, definitely important to know where you're weak as an organization. Um, and that that's going to drive uh, success in the draft in a big way. And so you just hit on the fact that, and it's not necessarily a secret that some organizations are better at the general skill of player development, but also taking it a step deeper. Some organizations are better at developing shooting. Some organizations have more adept coaching staff when it comes to teaching defense and, and those principles. Um, given the fact that that just like shifts towards every team, how and how it could be not not at all. Um, are the coaches of those specific subsets involved in the draft process at all? Like, does it is it out of the ordinary ordinary say, hey, we have this prospect, we like him a lot, but he struggles with X, Y, and Z, and then you go to that particular coach and say, hey, are you comfortable improving this, and how realistic is this? Because that's always like the intersection between front office and coaching staff is something I've always been fascinated in. No, it's a great question. I, I didn't experience much of that, but it does make a lot of sense. However, anyone who works in the NBA has a pretty big ego 
Um, and I don't think I'm offending anyone by saying that. Uh, and I would hope if you went to a coach like, Hey, could you develop this player? They would say yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the self belief is really important to become an NBA player. And it's also important to become an NBA executive or coach. And so it's a, uh, there, there is probably value in that. But as I said, I, I think I always struggled with coaches, uh, involvement in the draft in some ways, because they would watch synergy clips and <laughs> come up with like these, like really like hot takes on players based on just watching shots and shots defended uh, clips and synergy. And so I always was like, are we sure we should really be like giving them a voice? Like th that's not their job. Their job is to be amazing coach. Their job is to coach basketball amazingly. And like, that is not something I could do uh, by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but in the end you want to leverage everyone's like specialty. Right. And that's not necessarily a coach, but back to Max's point earlier, if they're leveraged in terms of, you know, here's what, here's ideally how you want to operate a player of this skill set with this, you know, what they're doing here. Does that make sense to you? Do, you? do you see a good fit there? That makes a ton of sense. And that, and that's how I would personally involve coaches in the draft more than like, Oh, where you rank this player in the draft, because that's, that's just not a good, and you know, they believe that they can watch a player once and have a good idea of how good they are. And uh, you know, I feel quite differently than that. So uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a different skill set, uh, player mm -hmm. evaluation versus versus coaching. Um, and so if you take the player evaluators and have them frame, quite you know it, questions that can be informative, uh, it's like it through a coaching uh, like prism, then I think that that makes a lot of sense as a way to get to get input that you absolutely need because because ultimately yeah like a, you can do you can perform the evaluation and you can pick a player who you, you know, evaluated properly. Uh, but ultimately like the, whatever outcome they realize is going to be translated through, through a coaching staff. Um, that's just, that's just how it works. Exactly. Um, so I think, yeah, a lot of people are going to be really curious about how trading during the draft works. Um, how do you, how do you go about valuing picks? about valuing future picks do do future evaluations come into play there like do you have scouts that are working on drafts two years down the road if you're if you're trading a, a a pick two years in the future uh are you like constantly on the phone is, is someone's job in in the in the draft room to just be talking to, to talking to everyone figuring out what all the, the options are or are you picking from you know the you said you have things on the board or are you sort of picking from those things uh when when the time comes that you would already these options that you'd already laid out prior to the draft yeah no it's it, it's a crazy part of the draft for sure and so i think it goes back to a lot of the work has already been put in and that even comes to like pick valuation and team projections and things like that i mean i know i almost at all times had like at least my own um, projections of where teams would be in three or four years based on their current roster, the future cap space, their likelihood of signing free agents. Obviously it's so much conjecture and you're making up a lot of it. Uh, but in the end, it's still helpful to have a better understanding of, for instance, like that Miami unprotected Miami first we traded in the McKell trade, like Miami. Yeah. Like they, they're not in the best situation at the moment, but they figure stuff out. They're going to find, they're going to draft someone. Their, in the, their cap space is worth gold. They don't yeah, say bad. Exactly. And so by 2021, which is this year, 
it's actually this year's that that pick and i i forget where it's probably in the it's probably 20 or so um and so yeah it's unprotected but it's not yeah and those are valuable for sure but if it, it's very team dependent who's the team that you actually have an unprotected first and a team like miami who's almost always good it's not as valuable that way and so making sure that you have not only just the next one or two years but even like four years from now having a sense of like you know, like a team like Atlanta a couple of years ago, like you could see what they were building. They were going to become a, a problem in a couple of years. And so having that understanding, even though they, that they were struggling at the time is really important. And, and so that, that changes how you value a pick. Right. And then you have to consider coaches front office. Like, is this a front office you believe in that they'll figure it out? Things like that. That stuff's all really important. And because you're, it's a super competitive zero sum game and you have to try to get value in, in any way you can. And so, yeah, really having even that competitive advantage, having a better understanding of the landscape of the league four years from now is, is, is weirdly helpful. And, and so that, that, that plays a big part of it. And to go to your other point of like, under, it's, it's incredibly important to understand, Hey, the 2023 draft, here are the players who are going to be available in that. So getting a pick in that, in that draft top three protected is, could be really valuable because it's a really deep draft. Um, you guys know way more about that stuff than I do. And so that was completely hypothetical, but that is absolutely important and it needs to be a part of the calculus as well. The wait is finally over. Football was in full effect and the NBA is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. Head to BetOnline today and use promo code ARMCHAIR to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Yeah, that was the part that I was going to harp on a little bit. Um, just And not necessarily because I've been burned in the past on saying, hey, don't take player X because... Nico Mannion and Cole Anthony are coming up as point guard prospects. And like, <laughs> we know how that one would have turned out if you would have passed because you wanted Nico. Um, so obviously just project projecting players forward. If you're going to play the dangerous game of watching high school and AAU film and try to predict something 18 months in advance, you're going to get burned. But there, there are possible ways to just evaluate group like groups of players. Like, Hey, there are a lot of wings in this draft. Like there are a lot of guards in last year or last year's draft. Um, and, and I think that's something just as someone who follows like the pre-college scene, the, the upcoming drafts are pretty low on guards and pretty high on these mobile modern bigs. Um, I think that is something that probably should be taken into account. And I think we see it in football is you'll see teams and obviously, and this is something I've talked about on podcasts is just like equating draft equity between sports is like, Hey, if next year is a weak quarterback class, like we got to make sure we get our guy because we don't want to wait two years. Obviously you could argue no position is as important as the quarterback position in basketball, but I think the point stands. It does that hold any weight just looking you said, obviously that it should, but it, does that ever come up in these draft discussions within teams Definitely. And, and it's not only the draft, it's free agency too. If like, you know, we, we were in a position for a couple of years where we didn't really have a point guard, for instance. Yeah. And like, it was also clear that there weren't many point guards to be available in free agency. And at that time there weren't many uh, trade options either. Chris Paul obviously eventually filled that role, but you have to, that's really important. And so like looking forward, as you said, I think at the time though, people weren't valuing the 2020 draft correctly it ended up being actually quite a good draft 
and especially at the guard position. And I think at the time it was considered supposed to be a weaker draft. And so that's where you go, goes, comes back to is like, how often is that narrative actually right? Uh, 2014 was supposed to be a transcendent draft with Parker and Wiggins. And it is certainly not, not one uh, 20, I guess the one, the only one that was actually right was probably 2018. Everyone had a feeling that was going to be really strong and it may be the best one of all time. That's a hot take. If anyone wants to debate that with me, I'd be happy, happy to do so. Um, and then, uh, and so, yeah, so, but I like your idea and, and this didn't necessarily happen uh, enough, which is not just like, here are the, you, these five players who we like in that draft, but like, Oh, this is a going to be a, a strong, big draft. And so we don't necessarily need to prior, like we, that's a position of need, but we don't necessarily need to prioritize that as much because we could potentially get our guy, uh, in a year or two kind of thing. So I think that's a really good approach. Yeah, when it, when it comes to evaluating the options that are in front of you during the actual draft, what kind of decision-making constraints do you face? Because it, it's, it's never just as simple as, you know, someone messed up this draft because they could have taken player X here and player Y here and, you know, all-star and, and really good rotation player uh, uh, Z and whatever went, went later. Um, it's never that simple. So what, what kind of decision-making constraints actually face someone who is put on the clock and gets to select players? So it's like, it's definitely not as scientific as you'd want it to be like in a lot of, because you're, especially when it's your turn. And once again, it's like your turn is way before it's actually your turn and the coverage you're going to, you're getting peppered with calls. Like most teams, especially if you have a lottery pick, almost every team is going to try to trade up. Like they may be offering you garbage, but they're going to try. So you have so many different options at once and you have to make such a quick decision on the fly. And it's honestly kind of like the game of basketball. Like you have to make a quick decision on the fly. And, and so you can, you can prepare all you want. Like we can, you know, I talked about, you know, preparing, understanding like the value of picks over the next four or five years, things like that. You have a, you, you know, understanding the land, every NBA player in as much detail as you possibly can convey, but you're going to have trades that pop up that you can't prepare for. And your job, at least my job was to give the final decision maker as much information as they possibly could use and understand to make the best decision they could. And that's, uh, that is definitely an art that's really difficult to do because you can, you know, I, I have an understanding of analytics in a way that general managers won't because that's my, like my specialty. And I could provide, you know, really complex model information to them, but that's not going to help them make a better decision. And so dumbing it down, if you will, and, um, and trying to, uh, give them that information that you know will you know guide them pro- to the path that you think it should guide them, and also trying to be as objective as you can. But also, this is your job, and you want to get it right. So, um, adding your personal uh, flavor and take on it is important as well. And so, uh, and so that's all you can do because you're going to be thrown. I, I there are so many examples where I can, I can think of when we had top, like the fourth pick, and we had fourth in 2016 and 17. The amount of trade offers we got for that pick, even like obviously prior to the draft, but on draft day as well was, it was insane. Um, like half the league calls you and offers you, offers you, and you know, you can probably 10 or 
10 or so, 75% of them, you can just ignore, but um, usually a, a good chunk are, are good offers that you really have to think through. Um, and, but, but in the end, because the majority of the NBA and sports in general are risk averse, a lot of those trades don't happen. And that's important for the public to, and you probably know that most people know that is the amount of trades that you rumors that you see in the public eye are one, usually not real trade offers actually. Um, but there are probably like hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of trade offers that exist that aren't released. Um, and this doesn't go to your question, but the thing I feel really passionate about is, especially from my time there is you have no idea who's actually doing a good job um, in front offices in general, because you only see the decisions that they actually did make. You don't actually see all the decisions that they could have made that they either didn't or, um, or they should have, or made the correct decision to reject the offer. That's so important. And that's 99.9% .9 of a front office's job is to actually prevent mistakes um, in a way. And that's, and that's something I, that doesn't get talked about enough because that's such a big piece of, of success in the NBA is to not make uh, decisions that, that harm your, your franchise moving forward. And there are so many opportunities to make those mistakes. I can tell you that. And uh, those who, those who correctly, uh, avoid those and then make the right decisions are the ones who are going to be successful. After you've submitted a pick, whether it's, you know, in the, in the WhatsApp or, uh, or officially on, on TV, uh, how do teams then regard players? Are they all of a sudden like the, you know, the shiny new toy that, that uh, is, is untouchable or do you maintain the ideally measured accurate evaluation that led you to selecting them in the first place it's the one night of the year where well if a team doesn't have a draft pick we can ignore them but let's say all 30 teams are in the draft um it's the one night of the year everyone is partying after and excited uh it's like you did it we did it we got it we got our draft pick right we did it we we, we called in a draft pick you know like and you're gonna because you made the pick you're gonna feel good and confident that you made the right one and that you're, you got the player you wanted. And, and so going in, you're, you're always going to be excited about the player. Um, you know, sometimes there are many examples where we took a player I didn't necessarily want, but you can convince yourself of anything and you have no choice. You may as well get excited about the player because it's a whole new player um, added to your team and um, you know, has a potential to, to be awesome. And that's exciting. And, it's yeah, it's just like the one day everyone's going to go get excited because uh, they made it, you know, essentially they just called the league office and made a draft pick. And that's <laughs> worth celebrating, I guess. But um, you're always going to convince yourself you've made the right choice, um, even though even if deep down you may know that it wouldn't work out, things like that. But um, there's the other side of it, though. You're, you're not as excited, maybe. And then they work out. And I will gladly say, say that Devin Booker is, is that for me. I was, you know, I learned a lot. That was my, my second year in the league and I wasn't as excited as everyone. And, um, I was so wrong. <laughs> and so, and that's, and that's, uh, and that's, there's also that too. So, um, and so it's, it's just fun to get excited, especially if you're drafting the lottery and you've had a long season, you may as well get excited about adding a young player to your team. Yeah. So, so it typically then feels like you got your guy. It's, it's not like every, every single player has some sort of point at which they become a value. And so maybe you're a bit queasy with a guy, but, but you just couldn't pass up the value. And so you had to go with it. Does that happen? Or is it really, everyone feels like they got their guy? No, it's, it's definitely the former, as you said, like um, third and no one, there's never, I mean, 
I'm trying to think if I remember even one pick where the whole room agreed um, that this is the the player we should draft in that position. And I don't think there was one, honestly. And so it's a, it's definitely something where you may be disappointed. You didn't draft the player that you personally wanted in that position if you were the GM, but because, you know, you have, after this, you have, I guess, free agency and summer league and then some off time. There's no, it's just like, I mean, it's your job. You may as well be excited about it. You can't do anything about it. You can't change the fact that you didn't get the player you wanted. And so you kind of just come to terms with it um, and get excited. And uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, to be honest. Um, in terms of speaking of being wrong on certain players, I think that's probably one of the most important parts of the draft process from a year to year standpoint is you have your evaluation, you stick to it, you're confident in it, you're, you're convicted in it, but then sometimes you're wrong. Um, this is, like you said, an extremely hard thing to put, you're predicting how 19 to 22 year olds are going to perform in a professional basketball league. It's nothing easy. How valuable are those experiences where, you, you are generally wrong and have to look yourself in the mirror and ask why. This sounds weird. I love being wrong. Um, and it's, and this is why I brought up the Booker anecdote. It's first of all, it's, I think it's an attractive quality when someone admits they're wrong. And, and I look and the two of the, the people I'm talking to right now are people who have done that and why, why they work at SIS. And so it's a, it is so important to get better. You're not going to get better unless you realize you know, what, not only that you have been wrong and that you're, you are fallible, but what specifically is your blind spot? Um, for me, initially it was, I focused way too much on on-ball defense. And so Booker was getting blown by a lot in college. And I thought like, I couldn't unsee that. I'm like, oh, he's not gonna be able to guard. Um, didn't understand, like completely understand, obviously his transcendent offensive ability. I undervalued that. And then also defense, that was me not fully understanding how to value defense either. Um, focusing way too much on point of attack and not uh, the fact that off-ball defense is typically where you're going to be on, on defense um, and just just general intelligence and motor physicality, things like that. And so that is so important. I haven't, I can't say I've seen it from everyone that I've worked with and uh, on the scouting side, but I can tell you that the best evaluators are ones who have gotten things wrong and, but most importantly, admitted it, reflected on it and learned from it. And you're, and then, but it's important is you're going to be wrong again. And it's also like, there's a chance though, that the reason you're wrong wasn't because you, the process was incorrect either. Right. Like there are situational factors, especially with the draft, like players can go to a situation uh, where, you know, as we've talked about in, over the last hour, like they could be in a bad development system and then they end up not working out and then they fail. They lose confidence in their game and then they end up busting out. If they would have gotten drafted by a, a much better situation. They would have probably maybe thrived, right? And so it's even harder to even sometimes know if you were actually wrong. Like if the so as long as you come up with a really, really strong process and understand uh, exactly what you're looking for in a player and how to value those things. And you know, some of the times you've missed on those things in the past and learn from them, then honestly that's the best you can do. And just understanding that you're going to, no one's going to bet if no one's going to bet a thousand in the draft. Like that's, if you think that, then you, you're, you're not doing it right. Um, and so, but all those things, all those things make a big difference. Yeah. I mean, self-reflection and honesty are the only ways to get better individually as an, as an evaluator, but how hard is it to do that while working in the NBA 
in an industry that has very low job security that you, yeah, your process may be great, but all anyone cares about are the results. So how, how difficult is it to do what's necessary to get better while working in the NBA? Really hard. Um, because yeah, as you like, there are so many people who are vying for those jobs and it's like, it's not even just playing in the NBA is super competitive, but working in the NBA is super competitive. And the people who have those jobs value them incredibly and they should, uh, it's a cool job. And so you don't want to come across necessarily as like wrong a lot, right? Because they'll be like, Oh, you're wrong. Like I'll hire someone else to do this. And, and so it's one of those tricky balances you have to strike of, when you're presenting to ownership and the decision makers coming across as confident and believe in yourself and like you, you know what you're saying and, and you, you feel you speak with conviction, but what you have to do is work internally and individually at getting better. You may not need to share that with everyone like of like, here are all the times I was wrong uh, and here, here's what I learned from them, but you should, you 100% need to do that individually uh, to work on it. And because eventually over time, you're, you're, you're going to get, if your process isn't right and you're not learning from your mistakes, it's going to catch, it's going to bite you in the ass in the end. It's going to catch up to you. You're going to start uh, doing things. You're going to value things wrong and, and you're just going to get passed by. So, um, but it's a good point because you can't, what I don't like about working for a team, we can have a whole separate podcast about that if we want uh, is the fact that you can't be as like honest and open about your mistakes like that, um, which I think is healthy dialogue to discuss where you've been wrong before. And that didn't happen enough during my time in the league. Does that ever crop up in the decision-making process that either that you bias yourself or that someone else is, is biased, you know, against a, against someone based on a past mistake like that, where you know, th- this player is broadly similar to bust that we drafted two years ago. Uh, even though this is a distinct player with, with, you know, beyond just, you know, say they had, these players had identical skill sets, maybe they're just different people um, or your, your developmental context is different now. Um, d- does it crop up in, in the actual decision-making process that people are biased by these past outcomes? Definitely 100%. And not only your own mistakes, but other teams mistakes too. Um, and so if you notice, yeah, I can't think of, of, of any examples off the top of my head, but um, teams where, or even internally, let's say, two, yeah, as you said, two years ago, you picked a player in a specific role, they didn't work out. You're going to almost be biased against taking anyone like that player, even if they are completely different people. Um, and that's not right, but that one, it is a factor, and it's a bias that I don't think gets considered enough is um, – overcorrection, I guess, to, to pass mistakes, especially because there are so many things out of your control. Even when you draft a player, there are things kind of out of your control of whether or not they become successful players. Um, you can't fully control what they're doing off the court and things and like their family life, things like that. And so there are factors that have affected players that don't get discussed in the media that aren't just like on court ability. It's like personal problems that, um, you, there's no way anyone could project. And so, However, you could still also overcorrect and, you know, just because look as in a, in a results-based industry of uh, this player didn't make it. And so we shouldn't take a player like him ever again. Um, and so it's a, it's a good point. Yeah. I mean, how, how do, oh, go ahead, Max. How, how do optics and perception play into the decision-making process? Like, do, does it ever 
occur that like maybe you regard two players very similarly, but you're never going to be publicly knocked if you miss on one as opposed to the other. Like, I, like it's really easy to take Markel Fultz number one overall because he's a consensus number one overall pick. No one is going to really hold that against you if he ends up not, I mean, not even catastrophically busting, but if he's not the best player from the, from the draft, you know, no one else was going to do otherwise. It would have, it would have been the contrarian thing to do to take Jason Tatum number one overall. Does that stuff ever come into play? Is that just like a function of job security? Um, or do teams try to really try to ignore what's perceived to be consensus or what, what uh, you know, other people would do? It's a phenomenal question. Uh, it's, it's not a simple yes or no. Uh, I, I do think it happens a lot. And you, and it, you know, I don't want to give those who do these too much, like feel, make them feel too good about themselves. But mock drafts have a big influence on internal rankings. And it's mainly because of what you said is that's set the perception of where these players should fall. And if a team drafts a player 15 slots ahead of where they, you know, were projected to fall by these, these experts, then that can cause a ruckus among, among the fans. It can cause ownership to question. You're just, you better be right. <laughs> you better be right. Um, obviously, I wasn't there the last two drafts, but clearly the Suns are not a team that does that anymore, <laughs> which I respect the hell out of. And like with Cam Johnson, like that's that worked out really well. Um, and no one had him going in the lottery and they took him 10th and he fit exactly or 11th or whatever. And that that's where um, they get a lot of credit for that and didn't care that the, you know, everyone on, on, in the media and things in their fan base were like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and so, but it does, it 100% has, there are certain GMs that clearly don't care about that stuff. And there are many that do, and it's almost always job security related. And yeah. so that's a, it's a really good point though. I was, I, that's right where I was going, which is job security and how, depending on what front office you're in or working for, like that can change the risks that they're willing to take. And let's just say you're in Toronto and you've had massive success with finding certain players towards on the margins and you just want a title. You've made great trades. Like you've kind of just been on an all time high from a front office standpoint, someone like them, those guys are much more prone to taking risks. And how do you go about that when you're working for someone who like, whether we like it or not, their livelihood is on the line. Um, how do you kind of toe that line and acknowledge the point that they're in and the decisions that they are going to have to make with what your actual evaluations are saying? It's really tricky because I think there are two things that I always had to think about. What I would do if I were the decision maker, like based on my analysis, but then also what I know our decision maker is going to do and likely like likely going to do here are the options that he or she is probably considering and work towards helping that person make the right decision, given those constraints. Cause you're not going to be able to change how a person thinks completely. Like that is uh, certainly arrogant to think if you could, if you think you're going to be able to ch change someone who's above you and makes more money than you, the way they think that's not going to happen. Uh, and, and so you have to, and yeah, the amount of times I had people reach out to me and during my time there of like, oh, why the hell did you do this? It's like, well, first of all, I didn't do anything. Uh, it's uh, second of all, like, that's not what I would do. But actually, given these, you know, these options that we actually were considering, it was the best option. And so we optimized what we could given our constraints. And sometimes a constraint can be 
like this decision maker thinks this way and you're not going to change that the way that person thinks. And uh, that's, that's sometimes uh, I get, I guess like a lost uh, conversation piece when it comes to all these decisions. So immediately after the draft, the development process starts um, and it's a lengthy process, but I think that the, probably the first step is, is summer league. What do you, or what does it, what does a front office keep in mind when constructing a summer league roster? Are you looking for diamonds in the rough at, or I mean, for potential two ways, or, you know, especially if you have, if you have high picks, are you starting to con- construct a roster that's going to put that player's development at the forefront? That's going to put them in a position that either reflects what their NBA role will be, or will just, you know, enable them to succeed what goes into the, to the formation of the, of the summer league roster. All right. So a few points. One, I hate summer league. Uh, that's like, I like attending summer league, but I hate the hot takes that come from summer league is probably a better way to put it. Um, two, this actually goes back to the three on three workout answer of like, eventually with the roster, you're just trying to find anyone you can to come play on your team. Um, given like, and that's where it's like, we need a big, um, or we need it. We'd like a shooting big on our team. Uh, who do, could we possibly add to who wants to actually play summer league? And then you end up with Josh Harrelson, which was kind of awesome. And, uh, and so there are, there are those constraints as well of like, it's just like a supply demand thing. Like not that many players are like, especially older players are like dying to play in summer league. And even some players are just happy playing in Europe and don't want to come play in summer league. But um, so trying to find the roster that way is good. But in the, the main answer is you, at least what I've experienced and what I, I agree with is you identify here are the players we are most interested in who are on our summer league roster. Typically they're going to be the players you drafted in either the last cup, probably the last couple seasons. And how, uh, how do you unlock the things that you want them to work on in summer league by surrounding them with the right players. And, um, and that could be, adding and a lot of it's going to be adding either undrafted players or um, recent like G league players who kind of fit that mold. And that's really important. And so, you know, when we, when Devin Booker was in his, we had him play, he played one game in the second summer league and he scored like 35 points. And then we, it was actually against your Celtics max. Uh, and then we, we benched him afterwards. Cause it was like, okay, this guy shouldn't be in summer league. Um, but we, we planned the roster kind of around him that he would play more. Um, and trying to give, we wanted to give him more creation, um, opportunities. So not focus, like don't add too many point guards so that we could just like play him at point guard and see if he can run the offense and things like that. Um, and it became clear. The answer was yes, he could, uh, and, and didn't need to play him anymore, but that's, I think a super important way of, of trying to figure out more about the player. Um, even, you know, it's just a few weeks after you draft them, but you can still learn a little more about them that way. Yeah, I can't recall who. I think it was, I think someone at SIS mentioned this that like really starting to invest in summer league teams as a way to like, to like, and also G League by extension teams as a way to develop higher leverage prospects. So, yeah, if you have like a first round pick that you use on, on a ball handler, like even being willing to spend something like the 50th pick on, uh, on a player that is purely, you know, you have no interest in them for, from an NBA perspective, but is purely designed to complement that player and, and uh, you know, encourage their development in summer league and the G league, which I think is a really interesting concept. Uh, may, maybe not viable from like a human perspective. Uh, 
but uh, it's not the bad. It's not a bad idea. Like the hit rate in the fifty is like exactly That's one. A, like Monty Morris was drafted around there, and like around Isaiah, other than Isaiah that, Tom, well, I guess Isaiah I, Thomas was he was sixty. 60, yeah, 60. yeah, and then but in general, it's so low that yeah, I'm all in if you get, especially if you draft like you know one of these initiators in this draft. Like if you draft Kate or Jalen Green getting someone who can like guard those guys. And obviously maybe those guys, the guys who are capable of guarding those guys wouldn't be available at 50, but I guarantee you there are, I mean, we don't, we're not going to, you know, use this podcast to discuss draft takes uh, for this draft, but uh, there are definitely some guys who might not get drafted who I, I'd throw out there to guard those guys. And maybe that's not a bad idea. Yeah. I, I mean, like there, there are guys like, if you want uh, you're like a gravitational movement shooter, like there are those guys every year, there are those guys every year who are unbelievable shooters, but, otherwise don't have NBA skill sets. Um, uh-huh. And if, you know, if that's, if that's, what's going to enable, enable like your, your DHO playmaking big man, um, you can just draft that guy 55th. Um, and, yeah. you know, may, maybe you have to give him a two way for, for this guy to be like uh, on board with, with and, and tell him he's going to get some <laughs> NBA days to be, on, to be on board with, with just you're, you're here to help us develop this other guy. But uh, I don't know. I do think it's an interesting concept because yeah, there's like, the 55th pick is almost definitely not producing even a fringe NBA player, uh, much less someone who's of like serious value. I would be much more into summer league. If people were, if teams started playing chess like that, the summer league, I would That'd be, be really cool. I'd yeah, be much be more into it. Um, all right. The, yeah. The last thing we wanted to ask or, you know, what lessons did you learn about the draft process? Uh, you know, what, what inefficiencies, did you see, or do you still see what advice do you have from, you know, what you learned inside of a, an NBA draft room? I think, you know, what my first one is going to be being good at basketball matters the most. It's like the, you know, I, the, it's always, Oh, this player has this ceiling, you know, who has the player, you know, the player who has the highest ceiling. It's likely a player with a high floor too. Cause like a player with a low floor to get to a, the highest ceiling is going to require an incredible amount of luck and, uh, player development and being good at basketball matters. And that's actually something you can measure because you can watch the film and see them play in a five on five context in real games, not these five on five combine workouts where they practice together, but real games. And that is still something that's clearly an inefficiency in the draft. If you look at last year's draft and we won't, we don't need to point out any players, but they're players who are clearly very good at basketball uh, Xavier Tillman and they were, they were ignored until the second round. And, uh, that will probably continue to be a problem tomorrow. There are going to be players who are really good at basketball who fall to the second round because of whatever it is. It's that, Oh, that he's only six, eight and he needs to be a big, or he's old. Uh, he doesn't create, you know, he's not bursty, right? We, that's like, that's a one like uh, for ball handlers. They're not lightning speed. So they're not good. Um, Malachi that's a, Flynn. Yeah, Malachi. Yeah, I mean, Flynn. Malachi. Like in in that in that article that I that I wrote with with Connor Ayubi, like Malachi Flynn is a is a small guard, and so small guards are bad at defense. Well, no, as, as we highlighted in that piece, Malachi Flynn was an exceptional defender, an exceptional defensive prospect. Uh, it's it's very easy to get caught up in in uh, narratives and aesthetic biases, um, but but you know when you when you actually start to evaluate the functional basketball tools and skills. Uh, that that definitely helps as, a, as opposed to looking at archetypes and drawing broad strokes conclusions. Uh, it, it definitely helps to, to get granular and, and look at the, the application of these skills and tools. Yeah. And 
And then related to that, it's not like being good at basketball is important, obviously, but really understanding what specifically the player you drafted is good at and what they're not good at and applying it to a really sound player development plan from day one. Uh, and that, you know, that if you have a really good system for evaluating a player and determining what, how good they actually are, then you should be good at also understanding their strengths and weaknesses and uh, developing the right player development plan and making those player development plans very specific to the person. And because some players do not need to be self-motivated. Devin Booker is a great example. That guy is going to work his ass off to be good at basketball and you don't need to give him a plan. Like he is going to do it every day. That's what he wants to do. He wants to be great, be legendary. And the, you know, that's not always the case. Uh, and so encouraging uh, very individualistic player development plans, depending on, you know, the personality and their strengths and weaknesses on the court uh, is incredibly important. And it's also important as for, for the players who you didn't draft when you're trying to better understand, uh, you know, whether or not that you misevaluated the player, understanding that there's a, there's potential for teams to have made a mistake in their, in their player development. And there's a chance, one, there's, there's a chance that you could just go trade for that player, bring them into your system and actually develop them. Um, and two, to better understand, uh, your evaluation process and you may not have made a mistake. Uh, it's actually just a matter of circumstance and luck that that player ended up in the wrong situation. And so those are, that's a really important consideration. Um, couple other things, you know, I, I, I touched on them, but want to reiterate them, which is, um, there are so many trades that are being discussed as we talk right now. There are so many trades that are being discussed tomorrow morning, although usually in between like 11 AM and 5 PM there, it's really quiet. And that's when it's super nerve nerve wracking and boring. Um, and you're just kind of waiting for it to get going. But then once the, about an hour before the draft, just, there are so many trades being discussed and almost none of them get leaked. And that's sad. I wish there was hopefully down the line that that stuff gets, gets shared more, but I highly doubt it because if you leak any sort of trade discussion, you're going to get fired and blacklisted from the league. So wouldn't recommend it. And, um, and then the trade possibilities that do get leaked are usually wrong. So for instance, that the trade OKC trade that got leaked the other day, probably, probably not a real thing. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's important to recognize that as well. With, with, without, we were out of questions, but I do kind of want to ask now with the, uh, like keeping in mind the idea that sometimes the outcomes are realized because of things that are out of your control or out of the control of the prospect, how much do you continue to lean on draft evaluations after the fact? Like if there was a player that you really liked in the draft the year prior and they had a really poor rookie year to the point that they're made available, how much do you lean on the prior of your draft evaluation versus what you saw in the NBA that year? Oh, Max, that's such a good question. You know, I love a good Bayesian question. Um, so like there's – there's not a perfect answer to this. Um, I think it, it 100% depends on the sample you have of, you know, the new, the new information you have after the draft. Like if you have a lot of, you know, three years down the line, am I going to use a past evaluation? Honestly, maybe a little, like it's still a factor. Like I thought, you know, there's evidence like Nick Stauskas is a good example someone who I think we're learning, you know, as we do some of our evaluation, like he, 
there is a lot there in the skill set um, in college. And it just, you know, and that's why I think that's why he kept getting chances actually, um, because there was a lot there and um, teams relied on that prior evaluation um, to give him a, give him a chance. And, uh, but um, I actually think it's an issue that I've experienced with evaluators is that they, they're way too reliant on their priors rather than the new information available. And uh, it's, and this, it kind of coincides with, it's okay to be wrong. And sometimes you just don't want to admit you're wrong. And on, on that, on that player. So you stand by, uh, Oh, that player is the fourth pick in the draft three years ago. Like we should trade for him. It's like, well, no, that player is really bad. And there's a lot of evidence of that. Them playing professional basketball, but they're bad. And so we, uh, it, so it's, it's, it's tricky, but if you really have a good process and you really believe in your ability to evaluate players prior to playing professional basketball, then you should rely on it for at least a little bit, but also recognize it's, it's like selling a stock, knowing what kind of wanted to get out. Right. It's the same concept. Like know when you're like, okay, this is just not happening and it's okay. Um, and that right. Like the best evaluators are going to be the best at doing that in the end. All right. I think that that's all we've got on, uh, on being inside an NBA draft room. Uh, Rosen, should we get into to a few spotlight skill guys? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, you want to go first? Uh, yeah. Um, I'll start with Shaden and then you can do Franz and I'll like add a little thing to the end of yeah, Franz. Sure. Um, so as you guys, if you follow me on Twitter, you know, Peach Jam started the two year Peach Jam that we waited for. Um, a lot of great prospects, a lot of great basketball. I want to talk about Shaden Sharp, who popped to me the most. I watched two of his games uh, with you play before the actual Peach Jam. Um, had heard rumblings about this crazy athlete, uh, but didn't really hear much about him as like a shot creator and actual initiator of offense uh, that wildly changed and the people I conversed with and sent them clips they're like okay yeah he he looks a lot better so what I want to talk about uh Shaden he's like six four six five combo guard and the appeal is this uber athletic creator who have made leaps and bound has made crazy strides as a shot creator and specifically want to highlight his footwork and balance on these side steps and step backs shot is the only the numbers are 36% from deep, but on incredibly high volume, I think he's about 77 attempts in around 12 games. And all those are self-created, um, rarely any catch and shoot, if any. And so just when you have someone who possesses the athleticism, the run and jump athleticism, the strength at the rim and the shot creation chops that he has at this age, um, you're probably looking at one of the top prospects in the 2023 class. Uh, I have nothing to add on, on uh, <laughs> unfortunately, on any like high school players going forward. Um, I'll do I'll do Primo first quickly, and then we, then we could do Franz. Uh, so, watching Josh Primo, watching all, like Oche Baji as well, who's who's returning to school. Um, these guys who are really good chasing off off ball screens uh, due to footwork and mobility, ability to get low and really dip around screens. Uh, it it made me think of. I, like I feel like that's a skill set that normally would be evaluated in the concept in the context of like chasing just movement shooters. Um, so yeah, that's really good for defending Duncan Robinson. But I do think that it's probably very relevant against on-ball creators as well. Just thinking about how these perimeter creators get their touches. Um, you know, if you can really neutralize a screen against like you know, say just like a, a standard like zipper action or something like that that's just setting up offense. If you're forcing a catch 
for one of these elite perimeter creators to be two feet deeper. And maybe it's, you know, they have to work a little harder for it, or they can't immediately pivot the way that they want to on the catch. It's just like, you're, you're taking fractions of an expected point off of a possession here and there that does add up. Um, and so I do think that like off screen chasing probably something that's more relevant as like a ball denial skill set uh, as like a stopper uh, air quote stopper skill set uh, against your premier perimeter options these days. Um, and then with, with Franz Wagner, I wanted to talk about uh, l- like length passing. I, I feel like there's, there's some moments on, on film where, where Franz will extend and use his, his uh, really excellent length to get to pass angle angles that people are really not accustomed to seeing. So like frequently wraparounds or hook passes. And I, I do, I, it feels like a touch skill with a lot of these extension finishes where if you're really comfortable, like going outside of your body, like maneuvering your torso like that, uh, it does, it does feel kind of connected. Uh, and that's just, a, that's just a cool thing that I've, that I think I've noticed for, for guys who are really functional and, uh, with their, with their length. Um, they kind of have, access to some of these weird deliveries that that other guys don't yeah um I, when i logged onto the outline and saw this i was extremely happy it's something i wrote about when i talked when i wrote about france a few months back um the passing i love how you hit on the wraparounds especially in the pick and roll he does such a good job of using that length to create windows that not only guards but other wings wouldn't be able to get to and i just want to add um he does the same thing as a finisher and it's something you alluded to um he took he learned the running skyhook from xavier simpson except it's a lot more functional when you're 610 with a seven plus wingspan instead of being six feet um and franz who while he might be a little hampered with the lack of vertical pop around the rim uh he, he does a, a good job compensating with this le- length and on these running skyhooks i think i have a screenshot in that piece um he, he he'll get like to a full extension which i don't really know what his standing reaches and obviously it's not equivalent exactly but uh yeah his length is extremely functional both on offense and defense all right i think that i think that that does it for for this episode um that was a lot of fun it was really cool it was a definitely unique experience for us um jake you have you have anything to plug well, I'm about to get up and shred some carnitas and it's going to be really good. Um, that doesn't help any of you guys though. Um, I would like to plug two things. One, you should definitely follow SIS hoops. We have some sweet content coming out. I guess if you're listening to this on draft night during the draft, we will be releasing some two, two and a half minute videos, breaking down some strengths of these prospects after they get drafted. That you may not have noticed on film. There is the value of getting deeper. Um, and two, and this is mainly directed at you, Max soccer is an awesome sport and all basketball fans should appreciate how great soccer is and get into it. Um, because it's a great sport as well. So go USA. They play tonight as well against, uh, Qatar actually. And so everyone should watch, uh, before the draft, it starts at six, uh, central time. So I'm going to plug that too. Awesome. Rosen, anything to plug? Um, nope, nothing to plug. I don't know if you guys can hear my dog barking. Yeah, we can, wait, I'm, we try- can hear, <laughs> I'm, tra- I'm trying to get through this as quickly as possible. I don't have anything to plug. Uh, huge shout out to Jake for coming on and hope you guys <laughs> enjoy this. I'm going to mute myself as quickly as possible. Um, all right. You can follow the pod at prep to pro pod on Twitter. You can follow, uh, Jake Rosen. I think still at Jake in the paint, which is <laughs> it's the best, best Twitter handle out there. 
Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good. Uh, you can follow Jake Lowe's at Jake underscore Lowe's. Yeah, and you don't have to. I don't really tweet that much. I just retweet. Well, some, sometimes you absolutely body Spencer. <laughs> that's um, yeah. I'm, that might be my new thing, and that that that's totally okay with me. Yeah, um, you can follow me at Max A. Carlin. Uh, I will also plug the SIS Hoops account. Please, please follow it uh, today if you're if you're listening to this on the morning of the draft. Uh, you'll definitely want to be following these videos. We uh, Spencer and I in particular put a, a ton of time into them, uh, and I think that they're going to be pretty cool. They should give um, cool insight into into what we're doing as well as as you know why teams are selecting these prospects because. You know, every every prospect has merit. Uh, you know, whether whether we ultimately think that they're good overall or not, every prospect has merit, and we're trying to help everyone see what what these teams are seeing in these guys, um, because the, you know there are reasons for every pick. Uh, and then also, I'll plug they're a little little old at this point, but uh, I wrote uh, about defensive impact. Jake wrote about um, what we're doing at SIS in general. Uh, and Spencer Perlman, friend of the show, uh, wrote about uh, passing. Um, so all of those things you can, you can find at the at the SIS Hoops Twitter account. Um, and uh, I think you should because they're they're good. They're I think they're interesting reads. Um, all right, I think that that's that's all that we have. Uh, so thank you all for listening. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.